Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come. Come in. Close the door. Seal us in this place together. Warm and cozy. Unwrap, grab some treats, pour a warming beverage, and find your place. We've got things to do. First, welcome. Yes, I am. I am your host, Lawrence Santoro. And Mahler, Tabitha, Cecilia, and I welcome you to The Nook and to Tales to Terrify. As you are peeling, pouring, and wandering the dark looking for a comfy spot— the sofa has a few spaces, by the way. It's oversoft, but that might be just the thing. Anyway, as you're moving about, I would like you to take a look at the month of March art. It's on the wall. Over there. There's enough light to see. Yes. Isn't she something? Hmm? I saw her... Oh, I can't remember where, but... When I first saw her, she was just black and white and gray, and even so, in those colors, in that light, I fell, well, how to say this about a man-destroying lesser god like Synthoprost Medusa, but I fell a little bit, well, you know, just look at those eyes. She was made for making you look, at least that. If you'd like, she's on the Tales to Terrify homepage. You know where that is, yes? HTTP colon slash slash www.talestoterrify.com slash and on our Facebook page. She went up last week, but I kept her to myself for that little bit of time. She's by author-artist 
Duncan Long. Duncan has created over a thousand cover and interior illustrations for HarperCollins, P.S. Publishing, Pocket Books, Asimov Science Fiction Magazine, Amazing Stories, and for many other presses and self-publishing authors. He's also authored nearly 100 books, including 13 novels published by Avon and HarperCollins, and over 80 technical and how-to manuals, most of which he illustrated. You can learn more about him at his webpage, http colon slash slash duncanlong.com. That's one word, Duncan Long. As you might imagine, there is a story that goes with our Medusa. She's an illustration Duncan did for his novel, Lesser Gods. He describes the book as science fiction, horror, and fantasy set in a future where the virtual merges with the real. Thus, we have people with horns, or, as with our Lady of the Month, snakes in their scalps. We also have worlds that are unreal yet real. The original publication of Lesser Gods was illustrated, but Duncan said he wanted to add more images and has been working recently to create them. Our March Medusa has a brief but significant appearance in the book, only one scene, and she doesn't turn our hero into stone, but she does try to trap him. Here, let me read her moment in the night from Duncan Long's Lesser Gods. I glanced down the street and saw only blackened corpses where once the juvenile delinquents had slouched. I felt a twinge of guilt, but told myself it wasn't my fault that the little hellions had blown themselves up. They were old enough to know right from wrong. I'd grown up on the street, and at their age I never would have shot an escaping victim who'd left something behind for me to plunder. Before I could ponder the morality of the situation any further, though, a voice purred in the darkness alongside me. How about a good time, handsome... I slowed to a stop and peered into the shadows to see a synthoprost whose beautiful face was briefly lit by a match that brought her cigarette to life. She held the match a moment, its lingering flame causing the snakes grafted into her scalp to thrash around her Medusa face. She blew out the flame in a way that made me remember I was of the male persuasion. A real good time. I considered her wriggling crown and found my voice. Yeah, thanks, but I'm in a hurry. I've got some boyfriends, if that's more to your liking. I realized something wasn't right. She was too persistent. Gotta go. I saw a flicker of movement above me and leaped backward, barely avoiding the bars that fell downward, nearly trapping me in the room-sized area where I'd been a moment before. Now, that wasn't very nice, I said, getting to my feet, shaking my finger at the woman. Not much repeat business, I bet. The synthoprost leaped forward, throwing herself against the bars, slashing at me with the stiletto she'd hidden. The sharp blade hissed past my face as I retreated. I'd drawn my pistol reflexively and now had it trained on her. Two days ago, I would have killed you and not thought twice about it, I said. Why, not man enough. Lady, do you want to die? I asked. 
Why someone would insult a guy with a gun was beyond me. I aimed, she screamed, I squeezed the trigger. However, my target was not her, but the motorized winch above her. No more victims tonight, I said. No winch, no wenching. Her curses filled the night. The wrath of a gorgon scorned. I turned away and clicked the skate wheels out of my boots, wheeling down the street while watching the ground, to be sure I didn't trip over any of the bones that littered my path. Well, that's from Duncan Long's Lesser Gods. I'll post the Amazon URL for the book on the Tales to Terrify homepage. Okay. Just us tonight. Fiction. Tim Wagoner has been a constant here on Tales to Terrify. We've heard, oh, half a dozen or so of his stories over the past two-plus years. Why? Well, because he's a damn good writer, among other reasons. You'll remember Tim's very short piece, Unwoven, in one of your earliest visits to the Nook. I'm sure you remember his longer piece, Long Way Home. And back in show number 39, Tim allowed us the use of Do No Harm, which remains among my favorite zombie tales. Tim says he wrote his first story on a stenographer's pad at age five. That was a comic book version of King Kong vs. Godzilla. A few more years, and he began selling professionally. Tonight's story is No More Shadows. The tale was published in Tim's 2008 collection, Skull Cathedral. In 2012, it led off Peter Giglio's Evil Jester Digest, Volume 2. It can also be found in Bone Whispers. And I think in the next 41 minutes, you'll see why this story has seen so much ink over the years. Hug your chum. Close your eyes. And give in to Tim Wagoner's No More Shadows. Daniel was making his third trip around the parking lot of electronics, the high-tech superstore with more. When his cell phone rang, he didn't feel like talking to anyone, and there was only one person it could be this time of night. But after the fifth ring, just when the phone was about to switch over to voicemail, he snatched it up from the passenger seat and answered, Hi, Dan. I hate to bug you again, but I was wondering if you had a chance to pop that check in the mail yet? Lindsay needs a new winter coat, and she has an orthodontist appointment on Monday. I get paid tomorrow, Angie, as if she didn't know that. I'll be able to write you a check then. He paused, not wanting to say the next words, unable to stop himself. I could come by the house after work and drop it off, if you want. Her reply came without hesitation. Thanks, but we're going up to Akron to visit my sister this weekend. We'll be leaving as soon as Lindsay gets out of school tomorrow. Just go ahead and mail the check if you don't mind. No warmth in her voice. All business. Yeah. Sure. He neared the parking lot's exit, thought about leaving. Instead, he turned and began his fourth circuit. Are you out somewhere? Sounds like you're driving. Just running a couple of errands. At ten o'clock at night? He shrugged, although there was no one to see the gesture. Got nothing better to do. 
and wasn't that the sad truth? Even sadder was the fact that his errands consisted of driving aimlessly around town, exploring side streets, circling parking lots, driving just to drive, staying out late so he wouldn't have to spend any more time than necessary in his crappy one-bedroom apartment. This was his nightly routine, had been ever since he'd moved out of the house two months ago. I'd think a lot of stores would be closed by now, an edge of suspicion in her voice, and the subtext of her words was clear. What are you doing spending money on yourself when you owe your daughter and me a check? He wasn't out shopping, hadn't stopped anywhere except at a burrito bungalow for dinner, but he resisted the urge to defend himself. He knew it would only end up with the two of them arguing. Can I say goodnight to Lindsay? She's already in bed. Sorry. He doubted Lindsay was asleep. She always read for a half hour or so before turning off the light and snuggling beneath the covers. When she'd been younger, and not so much younger at that, he'd read stories to her. Only a couple months ago, he'd been the one to check on her and remind her that she needed to turn out the light and get to sleep. Now he was a man who wrote checks to her mother and only saw his daughter every other weekend. I just want to say goodnight to her, Angie. I just want to hear her voice, he finished silently. Just want to remember that I'm her daddy, that I used to be someone. Angie was quiet for several seconds, and he thought she was on the verge of relenting. But before she could speak, a short, rail-thin man ran stumbling into the glare of his headlights. Daniel only had enough time to register fragmentary images, a terror-stricken pale face, small, round glasses, short blonde hair, stubby fingers on the end of flailing hands, right leg twisted at an awkward angle, the limb in danger of buckling any second despite the man's small frame. Daniel dropped his cell, jammed his foot down on the brake pedal of his Jeep Cherokee, and yanked the steering wheel to the left. The vehicle had been traveling less than 20 miles per hour, and his tires gave only a short squeal of protest before the Jeep came to a stop. Daniel sat gripping the steel wheel with both hands, breath trapped in his throat, heart hammering in his ears. No thump, he told himself. No scream. That meant he hadn't hit the guy. The adrenaline rush of fear gave way to relief, but that emotion was in turn obliterated by a surge of anger. What the fuck had that stupid son of a bitch been thinking? It was ten o'clock on a Thursday night, closing time for electronics, and while the parking lot was half empty, that meant it was also half full. If Daniel had been traveling any faster, he might have slammed into a parked car when he veered to miss the small man. As it was, only sheer luck had kept him from hitting another vehicle. The Cherokee's front bumper had edged into an empty space right next to a pickup. If he'd been a little slower on the brake... Daniel put the Jeep in park and searched for his cell phone. He found it lying on the floor on the passenger side, and he undid his seatbelt and leaned down to pick it up. As he straightened his seat, he put the phone to his ear, spoke Angie's name twice, but there was no reply. Either the call had been dropped or she'd disconnected. He tossed the phone onto the passenger seat, his disappointment over not getting to talk to Lindsay replaced by anger. He yanked the key out of the ignition and practically jumped out of the car. He started yelling before he even saw the man. Are you crazy? Didn't you see me coming? A voice in the back of his mind said that he should be checking on the man to make sure he wasn't hurt. And while Daniel felt a twinge of guilt for letting his anger get the better of him, he continued shouting. Jesus Christ, you could have been killed, or at the very least caused me to wreck. During his tirade, Daniel had walked around the back of the Cherokee, intending to confront the small man. He'd forgotten to turn off the jeep's headlights before getting out of the vehicle, but they were angled off to the side now, 
and they no longer illuminated the section of the parking lot where the man had been. But there were plenty of light poles stationed at regular intervals throughout the lot, giving off more than enough fluorescence for Daniel to see. It was early November in southwest Ohio, which meant cold and wet. It had been spitting rain on and off all evening, and a scattering of glistening black leaves were plastered to the asphalt, like insects with strange flat carapaces. The small man, he couldn't have been much over five foot, stood almost directly beneath one of the parking lot lights, the fluorescent glow washing him in ghostly blue-white. Now that Daniel got a good look at him, he could see that the man wore a blue windbreaker, far too thin for the weather, jeans, and tennis shoes. Daniel's own leather jacket and slacks were only slightly more appropriate for the temperature, but he hadn't expected to do much walking around tonight. Despite the fact Daniel had been railing at the man, he wasn't looking in Daniel's direction. Indeed, he showed no signs that he was even aware that he'd almost been hit by Daniel's Cherokee. He kept turning his head as if searching for something, his feet shuffling back and forth in constant movement, as if he were desperate to keep running but unable to decide which direction to go. Daniel's anger ebbed as he realized the man was probably crazy, and he was about to turn around and head back to his vehicle when the man's gaze finally fixed on him, and his panic-stricken eyes widened even further. Not in fear this time, but recognition. Daniel? Daniel Simons? Daniel was so surprised to hear his name come from the man's lips that for a moment all he could do was stand and stare. And it was in that moment Daniel realized who the short man in the blue windbreaker was. Billy Wallace? Is that you? The relief that washed over the man's, over Billy's face, was so sudden it was borderline comical. Billy rushed up to Daniel and gripped him by the shoulders, eyes wide, mouth stretched into an almost maniacal grin. My God, am I glad to see you. You gotta help me, Dan. They're after me. Too many conflicting thoughts and emotions roiled in Daniel's mind, preventing him from answering right away. He had no doubt that the terrified man standing in front of him, fingers digging almost painfully into his skin, was Billy Wallace. Daniel hadn't seen him since high school, over twenty years ago now. But aside from some wrinkles around the eyes and a hairline that wasn't receding, so much as rapidly retreating, Billy looked little different than he had then. Seeing him here, in the middle of Electronics's parking lot, on a cold November night was weird enough, but the basic situation was so eerily similar to the last time Daniel had seen him that he was gripped by an overwhelming sense of déjà vu, one so powerful that for a moment he wondered if he might be dreaming. But then Billy squeezed his shoulders more tightly, and Daniel imagined his fingernails might cut through his jacket's leather. No dream, then. The sensations were too real. Billy leaned in closer and gave Daniel's shoulders a shake to emphasize his next words. You've got to get me out of here before they catch up to me. Billy's breath, unfortunately, was just as real as his grip. Redolent of days-old coffee and stale cigarettes, it made Daniel's gorge rise, and he had to swallow once before he could speak. What the hell are you talking about? There's no... Daniel's words died as he looked past Billy, over the top of his head really, and saw a quartet of shadowy figures approaching from just beyond the pool of fluorescence in which Billy stood. They were tall, even taller than Daniel, who stood over six feet, and thinner than Billy, almost cadaverously so. They moved slowly, their steps measured and deliberate, and if it hadn't been for the echo of their feet on the wet asphalt, soft, plapping sounds as if they wore swim fins, Daniel might have thought them nothing more than an illusion created by a combination of the night's gloom and exposure to Billy's wild paranoia. 
Billy released Daniel's shoulders, took hold of his left arm, and started pulling him toward the Cherokee. We need to leave now. Maybe it was due to seeing Billy again, in such strange circumstances, or maybe it was the atavistic crawling sensation on the back of his neck that told Daniel he was shit-deep in trouble. But whatever the reason, he didn't question Billy. He started running for the Cherokee, digging in his pocket for the keys, praying they'd reach the vehicle in time. But in time for what? He wasn't certain. Daniel jumped into the vehicle and yanked the door shut behind him. He jammed the key into the ignition as Billy opened the passenger door and frantically climbed inside. Through the open door, Daniel caught a momentary glimpse of four dark figures approaching the Cherokee, a sight that was thankfully cut off as Billy slammed the car door. Daniel turned the key, resisting the urge to look past Billy out the passenger side window to monitor the shadowman's progress. He didn't need to see them to know they were coming. The Cherokee's engine growled to life and Daniel put the transmission into reverse and stomped on the gas pedal. The vehicle swerved backward and Daniel immediately stepped on the brake to keep from smashing into a parked Saturn behind him. The headlight beam swung around to shine on the shadowman and Daniel experienced a surge of irrational hope that the illumination would burn the dark figures out of existence like true shadows. But instead of dispelling the shadowmen, the glare from the headlights horribly accentuated their forms, revealing them to be man-shaped blobs of darkness, the surface of their bodies shiny slick like wet sealskin. Daniel saw no eyes, ears, or mouths, but he had no doubt the creatures could sense them, and though he saw nothing specific on which to base this conclusion, there was something about the inexorable way the four continued toward the Cherokee that made them seem hungry. Go, go, go! Billy shouted, and his words goaded Daniel into action. He put the Cherokee in drive and pressed down on the accelerator. Back tires squealed on wet pavement, and the rear end of the vehicle fishtailed before the Cherokee straightened out and roared forward. The shadowmen didn't move at first, and Daniel thought they might hit the damned things. But the dark quartet stepped aside at the last minute, two moving to the right, two to the left, and the Cherokee passed between them without difficulty. Daniel steered for the parking lot's exit, and though he told himself not to, he couldn't keep from looking in the rearview mirror. The shadow men were there, of course, haloed by fluorescent light, standing motionless, watching as Daniel drove away, taking Billy with him. And then Daniel pulled the Cherokee onto the street and accelerated, determined to put as much distance between himself and electronics as possible. They drove several moments in silence, moving at a good clip through Ash Creek's newly refurbished commercial district, past shopping centers, discount jewelers, upscale coffee shops and restaurants struggling to look as if they weren't only a step or two above fast food joints. Daniel tried several times to ask Billy what the holy hell those creatures were and what the fuckers wanted, but he couldn't bring himself to speak. He wondered if he might be in shock, but he decided that if he was, that was okay. Fine and dandy, as a matter of fact. He didn't think he was ready to know what the shadowmen were yet, and what's more, he wasn't sure he'd ever be ready, and that was cool. Copacetic, as they used to say in the 60s, just as long as he never had to see the goddamn things again. It was Billy who broke the silence first. Sure was lucky you came along when you did. I owe you my life, man. Daniel's first thought was, who says man anymore? But then who was he to talk? He just used the word copacetic a couple of minutes ago, hadn't he? At least I didn't say it out loud. I don't know if I'd call it luck, Daniel said, surprised to hear his own voice, 
even more surprised by how calm he sounded. I was just out shopping. He didn't want to admit the real reason he was driving around Electronics' parking lot. Didn't find anything, huh? Billy said, and when Daniel didn't reply, he added, The back seat's empty. Daniel thought about making some excuse to explain his lack of purchases, but he couldn't think of anything, so he just kept his mouth shut and continued driving. Lucky for me, anyway, Billy said. Just like that one day back in high school, right? Except this time, it turned out a hell of a lot better. Billy turned toward him, his eyes seeming to gleam in the dim illumination of the dashboard lights. Kind of weird, huh? His lips toyed with a smile, revealing teeth in dire need of a dentist's attention. There was something about that almost smile that disturbed Daniel, a kind of sly knowing that belied Billy's words, as if the man was making fun of him for some reason. Now that Daniel had the chance to observe Billy up close, he noticed other odd details. The man's hair was so short, it was almost a buzz cut, and his scalp had several bare patches dotted with scabs, as if he'd cut his own hair with an electric razor and done a piss-poor job. The cuffs of his windbreaker were frayed, his jeans were splotched with stains, and only one of his tennis shoes had strings. And then there was the smell. Not just his coffee and cigs breath, though that was bad enough in these close quarters. The ripe, sour stink of a body that hadn't been washed in Christ only knew how long wafted forth from Billy like some old factory version of radiation. It was so bad Daniel imagined his nose hair shriveling up with each inhalation. He had no idea what had happened to Billy after high school, but now he wondered if the man was homeless. He sure as shit smelled like he was. Homeless and chased through a parking lot by four shadow monsters, Daniel reminded himself. Wouldn't do to forget that little tidbit. You probably don't even remember that day, do you? Billy said. I'll never forget it, though. It was sophomore year and we were in the same gym class. With Mr. Briggs, remember? The guy was so fat he couldn't walk more than three steps without pausing to catch his breath. Some example of physical fitness. We weren't doing anything special. It was just open gym time, and the girls were playing basketball at one end of the gym and the boys at the other. I was picked last for a team. I always was. Daniel felt an urge to say something, to make Billy feel better, tell him that he hadn't always been the last to be picked, and even if he had, he'd been a decent player. But the truth was that Billy sucked big time at sports. He'd always been short, skinny, and uncoordinated. But adolescence, instead of granting him height, muscles, and a deeper voice, had instead robbed him of what little grace he'd possessed. The other boys had joked that Billy was the only person they knew who could trip while standing still, and the sad part was it hadn't been much of an exaggeration. We were on the same team that day, though you probably don't remember that either, do you? Things went like they usually did for me back then. No one passed the ball to me, and I got a lot of intentional fouls, which meant I got shoved around, punched in the arm, and knocked down. Billy was right. Daniel didn't remember the details of that particular game, but then he didn't really need to in order to envision the scene Billy was trying to paint for him. Variations on it had been common enough in the gym, on the playground, and after school as far back as Daniel could remember. For some reason there was always a scapegoat in school, a sin-eater whose only purpose in life was to take shit from the other kids. Back in the day it had been Billy Wallace's great misfortune to be elected king of the shit-eaters for Ash Creek High School. Billy went on. It wasn't so bad, I suppose. I mean... I didn't get a bloody nose or anything. I figured the worst I'd end up with was some nasty bruises, and I was used to that, so no big deal. Billy fell silent and turned his head to look out the passenger window. They had reached the end of the commercial district and were now traveling down the tree-lined streets of a suburban neighborhood. Mounds of sodden leaves 
were piled next to the curbs by those residents industrious enough to get an early start on their autumn lawn work. Daniel had once had a yard, and he'd hated dealing with the leaves every fall, even with the aid of a leaf blower. Now, he'd give anything to have a home with a lawn that needed tending instead of his cramped, lonely cracker box of an apartment that needed nothing from him and gave it back in equal measure. Daniel knew where Billy's story was heading, and it wasn't territory he wanted to revisit, especially right now. He'd recovered enough from the encounter with the Shadowmen to finally talk about them, and he thought that subject was a wee bit more important at the moment. What were those things back there? Why were they after you? Billy didn't answer right away, and Daniel thought maybe he was so lost in his memories that he hadn't heard. That, or maybe he was in shock, too. After all, he was the one the damn things had been chasing. Daniel was about to repeat his questions when Billy spoke once again. It was a different story in the locker room, though. Mr. Briggs might have been a little... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Lazy fat ass, but he only tolerated bullying in his gym up to a point. He never came in the locker room, though, so in there, anything went. A few of the boys, Chris Milligan, Bob Lewis, and Douglas Sanderson, started ragging on me for losing the game for them, whip-cracking their towels on my ass. It sucked, but I could handle it. But then their taunts began to turn ugly, and the anger on their faces became hatred. They made a circle around me and started pushing me back and forth between them, like I was some kind of exercise ball or something. Then they started hitting instead of pushing. Hitting hard. The other boys gathered around and started laughing, cheering them on, yelling for them to hit me even harder. Daniel felt a cold, prickly sensation in his gut that had nothing to do with the Shadowman and everything to do with Billy's story. He had to swallow twice before he was able to speak. It was a long time ago, Billy. Billy turned away from the passenger window to face Daniel once more. Not so long as you think. Then lower almost a whisper. Not for me. You were there, too, watching with the others, but you didn't laugh or cheer. Do you remember what you did? Billy rushed on before Daniel could answer. You told them to stop it and leave me alone. Daniel remembered. How could he not? He also remembered what had happened next, and that was something he didn't want to think about right then. So he was almost relieved when he glanced up at the rearview mirror and saw a dark shape framed there, 
At first he thought it was a car running with its lights off, but while it had the general shape of a car, there was something profoundly wrong with it. The edges were too rounded, the proportions uneven, and there was a lack of clearly distinguishable surface details. No dividing line between windshield and metal, no wipers, no visible headlights, no front bumper, and, worst of all, no engine noise. The vehicle, whatever it was, moved swift and silent, and it was right on their ass, the dark machine so close it might as well have been welded to the Cherokee. Daniel knew who rode inside. They found us. Billy spun around in his seat and looked out the back. Fuck! He faced forward and looked out the windshield. How close are we to the edge of town? Daniel couldn't take his gaze off the rearview mirror and the shadowy mass shaped into a crude approximation of a vehicle filling the glass. About a mile, maybe. Head for the country. Once we hit a good long stretch of road, we can go fast enough to lose them. What makes you so goddamn certain we can outrun the fuckers? Daniel demanded. I've been dealing with them for a while now. They're scary as shit and dangerous as hell, but they're not all powerful. Trust me. Everything had gotten so strange so fast that Daniel hadn't had the opportunity, let alone the capacity, to think rationally. But he decided to do as Billy said. The man seemed to know what he was talking about, and besides, it wasn't as if Daniel had any brilliant ideas on how to escape the shadowmen. The suburbs of Ash Creek soon gave way to weathered gray telephone poles and cornfields bordered by rusty wire fences. The road they traveled was straight and flat, no sign of any other vehicles for miles. The feeble glow of the Cherokee's headlights preceded them, and beyond that only darkness was visible. For a moment, Daniel had the impression that nothing existed in front of the Cherokee except what was revealed, or perhaps brought into existence, by the vehicle's headlights. If that was true, what would happen if he switched the headlights off? Would the road beneath them disappear, sending the Cherokee, not to mention its occupants, plunging downward in an endless descent into nothingness? Faster, Billy urged. They're catching up. His passenger's frantic voice snapped Daniel back to reality, or at least what passed for it this night. He checked the rear view and saw the shadow car closing fast, its shiny black surface tinted a sinister red by the Cherokee's brake lights. Daniel still couldn't see into the vehicle, but he didn't need to. He knew the four shadowmen were in there. He could feel them, feel their eagerness, their hunger, almost as if they were broadcasting their all-consuming need on some psychic frequency. The Cherokee was already doing close to 80, but Daniel pressed the accelerator down further. The engine resisted at first, but then its rumble deepened, and the vehicle slowly began to pick up more speed. In the rear view, the shadow car receded, but only by a few yards. It still managed to keep up just fine. A terrible thought occurred to him. Maybe the shadow car wasn't a vehicle after all. Maybe it was the shadow men themselves, the four merged together as one, disguised, their strength combined so they could travel swiftly and run their prey to ground. Beads of cold sweat dotted Daniel's forehead, and he felt a queasy tightness in his jaw muscles, as if he were on the verge of throwing up. I've had enough of this shit, Billy. I need to know what the fuck's going on, and I need to know now. Billy didn't respond immediately, and Daniel thought he was going to avoid answering again, but he began speaking in a voice so soft his words were barely audible over the roar of the Cherokee's engine. They don't have a name, at least not when I know. I've never heard them speak. Maybe they can't, he shrugged. You know those fish that just lay there on the bottom of the tank, sucking up all the other fish's shit? Bottom feeders, Daniel supplied. He glanced at the rear view again. The shadow car was no closer, but it was no farther away either. Yeah, that's what I figure they are. Not fish, of course, 
he let out a snuffle of a laugh. But they do the same sort of thing. I guess you could say they eat the garbage of existence. I'm not talking about the kind of crap people throw out of car windows as they drive. Empty coffee cups, crumpled fast food bags, that sort of shit. Not physical trash. They clean up the other stuff we leave behind. Painful memories we try to suppress and forget. Uncomfortable emotions that we struggle to cast out as if exercising demons. We can't see these things, but they're real. You can feel them. Ever been in an empty room and felt that the atmosphere was emotionally charged? Maybe you sense lingering hostility or profound sadness. That's what they feed on. Good thing, too, because if all that shit were allowed to build up... <sighs> he shuddered. Well, it would be one fuck of a mess, I bet. Billy's explanation sounded insane to Daniel, but then it was no more insane than the reality of the four shadow men. Daniel doubted that even the most logical and plausible of explanations, and Billy's didn't count as either, could have satisfied him. How could something like the Shadowman ever truly be explained? Daniel checked the rearview mirror again, and this time he had to look twice before he could bring himself to believe what he saw. The shadow car had fallen back at least a dozen yards, maybe more. Wild exultation filled him and he nearly let out a whoop of delight. Billy must have sensed his reaction, for he turned around and looked out the back window. God damn, Daniel, you're doing it! He gave Daniel a congratulatory punch on the shoulder. Keep it up. If we can put enough distance between us and them, we can cut the lights and pull off onto a side road or maybe into a farmer's driveway. They're simple-minded and act mostly on instinct. Once they set out in a direction, they won't deviate from it without good reason. If they don't see us turn, it won't even occur to them that we did so. They'll keep on going straight for miles before realizing they lost us. And by then, we'll have pulled back onto the road and hauled ass in the other direction. Billy's plan seemed like nothing more than wishful thinking, like a child who believes that once he's covered his eyes, no one else can see him. But then Daniel remembered something he'd witnessed when he'd been a child himself. He'd spent a week visiting his grandfather at his farm, and he'd watched one day as his grandfather's German shepherd chased a rabbit. Just as the dog was about to move in for the kill, the rabbit veered off at a 90-degree angle and bounded away in a series of long leaps. The shepherd continued running straight while the rabbit fled. Eventually, the dog stopped running and trotted back and forth across the field, confused, sniffing the ground in an attempt to pick up the rabbit's trail. But the rabbit had broken the trail by leaping, and though the shepherd continued searching for the trail for the better part of a half hour, the dog never found it again. Maybe Billy was right about the shadowmen. Maybe they did operate on instinct, just like Grandpa's dog. And if that was true, then maybe Billy's plan had a chance of working. For the first time since he'd gazed up at the shadowman, Daniel began to feel a slight glimmer of hope that he just might survive this night. Now? Daniel asked. Billy glanced over his shoulder. Almost. Give it another minute or so. Daniel wondered whether his Cherokee would last that long. He kept his vehicle in good condition, but it was overdue for servicing, and any car, no matter how well made and maintained, could only run flat out for so long before something went wrong. A burnt gasket, a leaking hose, a thrown rod. Any one of those would put an end to their flight and allow the shadowmen to catch up. And once they did... Danny wasn't exactly sure what the damn things would do, but he doubted it would be much fun, not for him and Billy at any rate. You said those things have been chasing you for a while now? If they feed on leftover emotional gunk, why are they after you? Daniel had almost said, after us, but he didn't want to pull himself into the same category as Billy. Let Billy remain the Shadowman's chosen victim. For as long as he could, Daniel wanted to continue to pretend he was the guy who'd come to Billy's rescue and not a victim himself. And if he didn't believe truly it, 
at least he could act like he did. It wasn't much, but it was all he had to hold down the ocean of terror roiling beneath the surface of his mind, and it would have to do. Billy's sigh was heavy with weariness. There are some people who become focus for others' negative emotions. They absorb those feelings whether they like it or not, store them like living batteries, he thought for a moment. Maybe more like a steak soaking up a marinade before it's cooked. He looked at Daniel and gave him a sickly grin. Makes for good eating, I imagine. Daniel's stomach lurched at the imagery Billy's words conjured in his mind. And you're one of these people, one of these psychic batteries? But before he finished asking the question, Daniel already knew the answer. Billy Wallace had been a pariah in high school, a punching bag, a dumping ground for any negative emotion someone felt like hurling at him, force-fed like a farm animal, bred for slaughter. He was a fatted calf, and to the shadowmen he would be a feast, a banquet of emotions darker than their own ebon substance. I didn't do much after high school, Billy said, but then I wasn't voted most likely to succeed, was I? I worked at a gas station for a few years, but the owner never liked me, and eventually I was fired. Same thing happened at all the other jobs I ever managed to land, until finally I couldn't get work anymore. I guess by that time I'd soaked up so much of other people's shit that no one could stand being around me for very long. I was homeless for a little while after that, lived right here on the streets of Ash Creek. You probably saw me around a dozen times as you drove around town, but you never noticed me. No one did. Not until they showed up. I figure they were drawn by my psychic scent, or whatever you'd call it. That was six months ago, and... Billy broke off and pointed out the windshield. There! See that dirt road up there to the left? That's perfect! He turned around in his seat and looked out the back window. I don't see any sign of them. Now's our chance! Daniel checked the rear view one more time and saw only darkness. He knew that didn't mean the shadowmen weren't still back there, though. They weren't on their bumper anymore, but with the way their dark vehicle blended with the night... There was no telling how far behind they'd fallen. Maybe not far enough. Still, this might be the only chance he and Billy got. Hold on, Daniel said. He took his foot off the gas, let the Cherokee decelerate for a few seconds, and then hit the brake. He had to resist the urge to jam the pedal to the floor. At the speed they were going, they'd end up in the ditch, maybe even flip over. As it was, the Cherokee's back end shimmied, and Daniel had to fight to maintain control of the vehicle. The dirt road, which Daniel knew would in truth be a mud road after the rain they'd had earlier, came up faster than he expected. He yanked the steering wheel to the left, and the Cherokee hydroplaned as Daniel aimed for the entrance. The vehicle slid onto the road sideways, and as Daniel had feared, it was nothing but mud. When the Cherokee hit the road, it kept right on sliding, smashing through a wire fence and into an empty field whose crop, wheat or perhaps soybeans, had been harvested some time ago. But even as they slid into the field, Daniel had the presence of mind to flip off the Cherokee's headlights and take his foot off the brake, and they came to a stop in darkness. Daniel turned off the engine, just in case the sound might attract the shadowman's attention. Besides, he doubted they'd be able to drive out of this muck any time soon. They'd probably have to be towed out. Of course, if their ruse didn't work and the shadowman found them, getting his Cherokee out of the field would be the least of his worries. Daniel and Billy sat listening to the ticking of the Cherokee's overheated engine. A faint odor of burning plastic drifted in through the vents. But Daniel barely registered it. He was too busy looking out the windows, searching the night for sign of the shadowman. He saw nothing. But as he started to feel optimism stirring, he reminded himself that they wouldn't see anything. Not until the shadowmen were almost on top of them, 
and by then it would be too late. While Daniel feared the shadowmen for their sheer otherworldliness if nothing else, sitting there in the dark, watching and waiting, he realized he didn't fear dying. He'd been seeing a therapist ever since Angie had told him she wanted a divorce, and he'd just had his latest appointment two days ago. After telling the psychologist how he felt like a failure as a husband and a father, absolutely without worth to anyone, least of all himself, she'd tried to turn the conversation in a more productive direction by having him focus on the future. What are you looking forward to? she'd asked. After a moment's thought, he'd answered, nothing. But that hadn't been his first answer, the one that had popped into his head the moment she'd asked the question, the one he'd left unvoiced, consisted of two simple words, my death. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad if the shadowman found him. Maybe it had been a mistake to run in the first place, a missed opportunity. Billy spoke then, interrupting Daniel's grim thoughts. Do you remember what you did when those boys started to beat me up in the locker room? For a moment, Daniel had no idea what Billy was talking about, but then it came back to him. He answered without taking his gaze from the windows and the darkness that lay beyond the glass. I tried to help you. You took two steps toward me, exactly two. Yes, I counted, and yes, I've never forgotten. I also have never forgotten what you said. Hey guys, enough's enough. Leave him alone. Do you recall what happened after that? Billy's tone had taken on an insistent, almost demanding edge, which Daniel chose to ignore. One of the boys, Chris Milligan, I think, told me that if I didn't stay out of it, I'd get my ass kicked too. Even now, sitting in the dark waiting for creatures of nightmare to come for him, Daniel felt shame at the memory. Shame because he hadn't stood up to Chris and the others, because he'd backed away and gotten dressed to the sound of the crowd laughing as Chris and his cohorts returned to their fun. They were still at it when he left the locker room and headed off for class, Billy's sobs lingering in his ears. None of them, Chris Milligan, Bob Lewis, or Douglas Sanderson was ever punished. Billy's voice was thick with venom now, so much so that the sound of it made Daniel turn away from the window and look the man in the face, a face that became increasingly twisted with hate as he went on. That fat-ass Briggs never checked to see what went on in the locker room, but I always figured he knew. How could he not? You know gym teachers, they figure shit like that will toughen you up, and if it doesn't, you're a pussy and you deserve whatever you get. I survived, but I lost a couple of teeth, and I still walk with a limp on my right side. Daniel remembered when he first saw Billy tonight, illuminated by the Cherokee's headlights, his right leg looking as if it might buckle any second. Billy paused and then his mouth eased into a sly smile, though hatred continued to burn in his eyes. Everything I told you about the shadow creatures is true but I never said they were chasing me. I said I've been dealing with them for a while. I chose my words very carefully, Daniel. They were drawn to me because they wanted to feed on me, but they didn't want to kill me. They wanted to keep me alive so I could continue to produce negative emotions for them, like a cow giving milk. Nothing personal, but that's an image I could have done without. Go ahead and laugh if you want, but my friends are plenty satisfied with what I give them, so much so that from time to time they do little favors for me. Daniel kept his gaze fastened on Billy, but out of the corner of his eye, he thought he saw something dark move outside the Cherokee. No, some things, plural. I told you they're not very intelligent, at least not in the way you and I recognize, but I've learned to communicate with them over the last few months, enough to get my ideas across anyway. We visited Briggs first. He was responsible for making sure students behaved in gym a responsibility 
he obviously didn't give a fuck about. The son of a bitch was retired and stuck in a nursing home, but he was still fat as ever. After that, we visited the others. First Chris Milligan, then Bob, then Douglas. His smile became a grin. Now, it's your turn. I saved you for last, because what you did was worse than any of the others. As much as I hated them, I understood that they were just acting according to their natures. Not that I forgave them for it, or spared them. But you understood that what they did was wrong, and you even tried to stop it. Except you pussed out in the end. For a moment, I believed there was someone on the sorry shit pile of a planet who gave a damn about me. But then you turned your back and walked away. That's the worst thing anyone's ever done to me. Worse than all the punches, kicks, and name-calling I endured as a kid. Worse than all the bosses who yelled at me and told me I was nothing when I became an adult. All the women who wouldn't even waste the saliva to spit on me. And you know what was worst of all? There was definitely movement outside the Cherokee now, and it was close. Because I gave you hope, Daniel said. Then I took it away. Exactly. Billy glanced out the window, and the venom in his voice gave way to eager anticipation. It's been a long time, Daniel, but your bill has finally come due. Billy was so excited that he was quivering, nearly pouncing on the passenger seat. How many times did you practice that little speech? Never mind. I've got a serious question. Why go to all the trouble of pretending to run away from the shadowmen? They could have just taken me back in the parking lot. No, wait. I get it. You wanted me to see what it was like to have hope taken away. Smart man. Billy's grin stretched wider then, assuming a maniacal aspect that Daniel found quite appropriate given the circumstances. Besides, he added, it was more fun this way. I'm sure. So, you hook up with supernatural creatures that are willing to do favors for you so long as you keep supplying them with the good dark stuff. And the best you can come up with is to use them to kill some people who pissed you off in high school? The hatred in Billy's eyes dimmed as doubt moved across his face, but a second later a sneer contorted his features, and the fire in his gaze burned strong as ever. You're just like all the others who made my life miserable over the years, for no other reason than to punish me for the crime of existing. Movement caught Daniel's attention and he turned toward the driver's side window to see an ebon hand press against the glass. It was followed by a second hand, and then a dark eyeless face appeared between them and leaned forward. A round orifice gaped open in the middle of the face and affixed itself to the window, the ring of black muscle pulsing rhythmically, as if the creature were trying to suck Daniel's psychic energy through the glass. With a sick twist of nausea, Daniel remembered how Billy had described the shadowmen as bottom feeders, and he had to admit the comparison was grotesquely apt. The remaining shadowmen joined their companion, two on the driver's side window, two on the passenger's until all four obscene mouths were sealed against glass, sucking, sucking. Daniel should have been terrified, and on some level he was, but he also felt a strange sense of peace settle over him. I'm not going to pretend I know what it was like for you to grow up as the world's emotional tampon, Daniel said, but the past doesn't excuse the present. There are lots of things we can't control in life, too damned many. But there's one thing we can control, and that's the choices we make. You've made your choice, Billy, and now it's time for me to make mine. Daniel undid his seatbelt, then thumbed a switch on the driver's side door, causing the locks to disengage with muffled chunks. Billy frowned in confusion. You're going to give yourself to them? He sounded disappointed, as if he felt cheated that Daniel wasn't going to struggle and beg for his life. No, 
I'm going to leave, or at least try to. I have to go to work tomorrow, and I've got a check to mail to my ex-wife. You can live in yesterday if you want, but I've been there, and I wouldn't recommend it. Daniel started to push the driver's door open, and the two shadow men standing at the window drew back, almost eagerly, he thought, to give him room. He shoved the door the rest of the way open and stepped out into the cold night. His plan was simple, to start running as fast as he could manage across the muddy field and get as far as he could before whatever happened, happened. It might not have been much of a plan, but that was okay. It was his, and for the first time in months, he felt alive again. He inhaled deeply and prepared to run as four patches of darkness closed in. Thank you, Tim, for letting us hear No More Shadows. There's something in there for all of us, I think. The bullies, the bullied, and those who just stood by. Since his King Kong days, Tim Wagner has published over 30 novels and three short story collections. His articles on writing have appeared in Writer's Digest and Writer's Journal, among other publications. Lucky students at Sinclair Community College can study creative writing with him. Ditto those students at Seton Hall University going for a Master of Fine Arts in writing popular fiction degree. Tim hopes to continue writing and teaching until he keels over, after which he wants to be stuffed, mounted, and placed in front of his computer terminal. Hmm, not in front of his classroom. Ah, well. You can peek into Tim Wagner's mind at his blog, http colon slash slash www.timwagner.com. That's Tim, W-A-G-G-O-N-E-R dot com. And thank you again, Jonathan. Jonathan Dance, I believe, has read every one of Tim's stories here in the Nook. Well, why not? They're comfortable with each other. Jonathan's on-mic persona, Tim's tale-telling, they mesh. Of himself, Jonathan says he is a purveyor of digital services by day and a ravenous consumer of the printed word by night. In the gray hours, he can be found at his keyboard, crafting his own words into novels, short stories, et al., Jonathan lives on the edge of the New River Gorge in West Virginia, and I hope he has drinking water. That edge, by the way, is shared by his wife, daughter, and a menagerie of domestic pets. And if the mood strikes, you may touch base with him at his blog, Words and Coffee, at jonathandance.com. That's with a Z, Dan's. And that will also be on our Tales to Terrify homepage. And that... Fellow children of the night will be that for this week. The weather has somewhat moderated. Remains below freezing, but it's it's not bad out there. An inch or two of fresh snow has covered the still unmelted mini mounts that have 
blackened from car exhaust and industrial effluvia over the past month or so. The mounds have shrunk, but the shrivel of them is deliquescence by sublimation, I fear, not good old-fashioned melting, so it's still below freezing. Now that's enough about chemistry. Are you all layered again? If you make it home through the shadows tonight, don't forget that little donate button to the right of your screen on the Tales to Terrify homepage. You might want to click it. It helps. Well, are you ready? I'll open the door, keep it open until you're out. You've got a dark stairway to navigate. The, the bulb is out. Well, it's been out for some time, but between the spill from the nook and the street light down the way, you'll have enough light to see the bend in the stairs and the torn carpet near the bottom. It's when you get out there and start wending your way among the light and dark places on the side streets where the shadows sometimes move and can trip some people up. If you're not looking, ah, well, you'll make it. You'll be breathless and maybe a bit chilled and frightened when you get home, but what's out there? They're just shadows, shades of what was and what might yet be. But there you are, your home, in the light and the warmth, hugging the cat thinking of sleep, and, of course, pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening.